Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come again to these words of Jesus, uh, we pray that you would help us to grasp them. Help us to grasp the weight and the gravity of them, the importance of them, that the things that he said would not be lost upon us. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, again, we come uh, to Matthew chapter 24. We began last week by looking at this great passage, which forms the fifth of the five great teaching sections of the Lord Jesus, as recorded by Matthew in his Gospel. And this one deals with the issue of the end times, or use the, the technical term eschatology, which just means the study of the end times or the last things. In the verses we looked at last week, verses 1 to 14, we saw there that Jesus gave an outline of what was ahead of his disciples between his two comings. And in that he spent much of his time in verses 4 to 12 telling those disciples what the signs of his second coming were not in order that they avoid confusion. And then he gave us something very important to think about in those last two verses, indicating that the spread of the gospel all over the world is one of the key signs of the nearness of the end of all things. And that before that happens, and while that happens, In the meantime and always, God's people are to patiently endure with all long-suffering all that will come upon them as we wait for the end to come. And so as we looked at that passage last time together, uh, two major messages have shone through. The first is this, uh, that we should always subject our thinking and our opinions about the end times and about all things to the Lord Jesus. Always subject your thinking to the Lord Jesus. When the disciples asked the question they did in verses 1 to 3, their questions revealed just how confused they were about how things were going to be for them and how things were going to end. And so if they had not gone to Jesus, if they'd not brought their thinking to him, if they'd not asked that question of him, they would not have known to submit their thoughts to him. So it's important for us to do the same in all areas of life and always in relation to end times because nobody knows the end times like Jesus does. Nobody knows, but Jesus does. Then we also learned last week that Jesus laid a strong emphasis on the need to endure and to persevere and to do that to the very end. In fact, that's going to be one of the major themes that we'll come across throughout chapters 24 and 25, that need to persevere to the end. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. Things are going to get more and more difficult for believers. 
But there is no call for us to back down, to step away, to lay down our arms. Having said that as background, uh, let's consider the verses from our text this morning and add into the picture we are beginning to create these two things. First you'll note here how Jesus warned his disciples to be prepared for an overwhelming time of trial. An overwhelming time of trial. In verses 15 to 22, uh, Jesus speaks plainly and openly about something that we need to understand well. It was the imminent destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen in 70 AD as a fulfilment of prophecy. Now when you look at these verses, you could be forgiven for feeling somewhat confused by the reintroduction of events that are going to happen immediately in Jesus, in the disciples' own lifetime, and by the things that Jesus refers to now. So let's consider these verses for a moment. In these verses, Jesus is doing something we call recapitulating. That is, he's going back over some of the ground that he's already covered. He's summarising. He's going back over what he's already said. A bit like a preacher who thinks it's important to summarise what he's already said to get the point across. I do it all the time. I've already done it for you this morning. Recapitulating. Telling you what I've said so that you know what's being said. And this is what Jesus is doing here. How do we know that Jesus is going back over what he's already said? Because at the end of verse 14, he got to the end. He said, and then the end will come. And once you get to the end... You can't go further than the end, can you? And after the end comes this? No, that's eternity. There's no place you can go. Jesus brought us to the absolute finish line. He said, and then the end will come. So where can you go once you've hit the end? Well, you go back. You go back. Verse 15 takes us back to the present the present for the disciples, as it was. Remember the questions they asked him? They said, what about these beautiful stones, Jesus? And he said they would be all thrown down. And they had said, tell us, when will this be? And so Jesus did. He told them. Now, it's not unusual for the prophets in the scriptures, to simply repeat the same thing. And it takes careful reading to keep on track with the period of time that Jesus is referring to. And it takes some thought too to understand here the imagery that Jesus speaks of in verse 15. He speaks of, quote, the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet When you see that, standing in the holy place. And then you have the parenthetical comment added by Matthew, let the reader understand. Now, what in the world's going on here? That's a good question. What is going on? Well, Jesus is telling his disciples 
and those to whom his disciples will bear witness, warning them, as a biblical prophet often would, that Jerusalem's days were well and truly numbered and that all that would happen to Jerusalem would happen in accordance to the prophecy found in the book of Daniel. Three times in the book of Daniel. Chapters 9, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 31, and again in chapter 12, Daniel makes reference to the abomination that causes desolation as we've heard read for us this morning. And by this, Jesus foretold that something would happen within the temple in Jerusalem that would be an abomination in the sight of God and lead to the desolation or the total misery or the total loss of that temple, the abomination that brings it to an end. We have to tread carefully here and do this as we note that the prophecy of Daniel was partially fulfilled in 167 BC. You might like to look up the name Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the king of Syria. He captured Jerusalem. He desecrated the the temple by offering on the altar the sacrifice of a pig to Zeus, to another god, and forbidding the religious practices of the Jews and directing that the copies of the law be burned. It was a terrible day. I didn't see it, of course, But I can imagine that it was a terrible day for the Jewish people. And I said partially fulfilled because it was not all. For here Jesus warned that it's about to happen again with a more ultimate fulfilment of that prophecy. And so when Matthew says, let the reader understand, he's saying, let the reader of the book of Daniel understand that the prophecy in this book about the abomination that causes desolation is going to find fulfilment again in another event that Jesus is warning of and another event that is still ahead of us. Jesus warned his disciples that when they saw the armies of Rome surrounding Jerusalem, And when they saw the imperial banners planted, as it were, on holy ground, and when they saw those banners declaring the divinity of the Roman emperor within the temple itself, they would know that another fulfilment of Daniel's prophecy was being fulfilled before their eyes. And you can imagine the horror felt by believers and Jews alike in Jerusalem when those battle banners were seen and planted throughout the city in 70 AD, when the temple itself was torn down by the unclean hands of the Roman armies 
after first desecrating the temple by entering in and setting up the image of their false god in that holy place, the emperor. What did Jesus tell his disciples to do? Did he tell them to fight? Did he tell them to gather an army? Did he tell them to call triple zero? No, it's quite clear what he did. He said, run. He said, flee. He said, get out of Jerusalem for your own safety. He told them to brace themselves for this overwhelming time of trial that would push them to an extremity and to do all they could to remove themselves from that trial, to run. He told them these things that they might understand just how intense this trial was going to be and that they should flee for their lives. But in the midst of that warning so big, Note too the tender-hearted love and concern that he had for people. See in verses 19 and 20, Jesus addressed very practical concerns that reveal how he felt about what his people were going to be put through. See how he singled out expectant and nursing mothers. How hard for them it will be, he said on that day. See how he singled out the Jews concern for them because this trial may break out on a Sabbath. See his concern for all people that this time to flee may come in winter, not because it was going to be cold, but because in winter in Judea the rivers and streams can become swollen with water and hard to get across. History tells us that many of the Jews who tried to escape from Jerusalem were caught on one side of a swollen stream and slaughtered there by the Roman armies. Jesus showed great concern for the difficulties that all kinds of people were going to have to go through in 70 AD. Now you might say, oh well, this is all in 70 AD, so I don't need to worry, this is just history. Yeah, but that's not all that Jesus had to say. In verses 21 and 22, the scene is a little bit changed. While verse 20 refers to those escaping the Romans with those obstacles of winter and Sabbath, verses 21 and 22 jump again without much warning from the immediate to the future. As he uses that which will happen to Jerusalem as a kind of a preview to that which will happen at the end of the age. When again another short-lived but intense trial associated with the end of the age would come upon the whole world. And so you can't help but read what Jesus said here about that which the people of Jerusalem went through and think what's still ahead at the end of the age for us and not think of Revelation chapter 6 when he opened the sixth seal. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to them, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, 
For the great day of their wrath is come, and who can stand? Feel the gravity and the weight of what Jesus said would happen. Then secondly, in verses 23 to 28, Jesus warned his hearers not to be deceived by a continual parade of false Christs. Jesus warned his disciples that there would be many false messiahs appear. Now this is in relation, uh, sorry, is this in relation uh, to the time in leading up to the immediate of Jerusalem in 70 AD or is this in relation to the end of the world that Jesus has spoken of? Some commentators go one way and say, no, this is just for then. Other commentators go the other way and say, well, this is for the future. For me, looking at the text and hearing Jesus say, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, and so on, it sounds very much to me like he's referring to the end of the age. But there are compelling arguments also to to suggest that it was to the immediate future that Jesus is referring to leaving this humble expositor to to be happy to say it's quite possibly both. Neither one or the other, but both. Then and now. False messiahs then, false messiahs now. And a continual parade of them who will do their best even to lead the elect astray. This is what he taught would characterise all of history from the moment he left this earth until his return of glory. And so for the second time in this chapter, uh, Jesus warns his people not to be deceived, whether believers soon after the destruction of Jerusalem, who may have thought, like the disciples did, that the end of the temple meant the end of the world. Or to us, who live in this final age, who are confronted with a multitude of false religions, and false claims still centering around claims that people bring to be the Messiah. After all, the longer we wait and the more impatient we grow, the more likely we are to give give up on waiting on the real Christ and fall for the devil's trap of a counterfeit. Unless you think the idea of people proclaiming themselves as a Messiah, I did some research and got some stats together. In the 18th century, just two people made such a claim. That's as far as I don't know how they made that claim, but just two people were noted. In the 19th century, the number grew to six. In the 20th century... The number of claims to be the Christ, the Messiah, 31. In the first 20 years of 2022, we've already had six. So we're on track to break last year's record. Now I can't vouch for the reasons people have in making a claim. I can't vouch for the proof of their claim, only to make clear that it has happened in the past and is happening and it will happen. And this isn't even including the number of people who think someone else is the Messiah. As we heard about last week, the comments about Barack Obama. 
And Jesus is saying these things that we might be kept from being deceived. And so that we might not be deceived, he gives two illustrations. On the one hand, that his coming is going to be like lightning. It's going to be obvious. It's going to be bright. It's going to be visible. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be unmistakable. Then he gives another illustration. Vultures. We don't have them in our country. But we know about birds that feed on roadkill. And you know if you see them circling around, you know what you'll find. In other words, just like birds don't miss the roadkill, so also the coming of the Son of Man will be obvious. You can't miss it just as those birds don't miss what they're preparing to feast upon. Remember I said last week, if you have to sit down and wonder, is that Jesus that's come back? Forget it, because it's not him. Because when he comes, his arrival will be universal, it will be unmistakable. And all this backs up what Jesus says, you need to be watchful and prepared. Although you could make a point of saying that being watchful is surely a part of what it means to be prepared. Well, what then? How do we bring this to home? What are these verses in the flow of the argument in relation to the end of all things, knowing that some of what I've said this morning is fairly large in its context? Maybe you've never thought about this topic. And so you're thinking, what's all this talk about end times and eschatology? What's it all got to do with me? How's it going to help me today? How is it going to work out in my life? Well, it has everything to do with helping you today. You see, Jesus has told us beforehand of what is coming, and just as he told those who were with him at that time to prepare for what was coming upon them. And if you don't sit up and take notice and gird yourself and prepare yourself for this intense time of persecution and trial that will mark the end of all things, then you'll be surprised when the day breaks. You might not know of Abraham Tucker. He wrote a book in 1768 called The Light of Nature Pursued. But you might remember one famous line from his book, knowing that to be forewarned is forearmed. Jesus has told us. And again, maybe your thinking is more along the lines of, it will never happen in my lifetime. Maybe so. Probably every generation of believers has thought that. But sooner or later, one of the generations of believers who are alive on the earth will be the generation that see him come. How do you be ready? Let's think of these ways. By praying, first of all. Praying for what? Praying for God's strength to equip you and strengthen you to endure. There are so many references in the scriptures to endurance, aren't there? Not just in terms of getting to the finish line as in a race, but perseverance through trial. We don't know anything yet of the trials that other believers already are experiencing on the other side of the world. But the same kind of endurance is what we need to be praying for. 
we become ready by remembering. We remember God's control of these things. The scriptures warn us about these trials. And so trials in this life do not disprove, but they prove the sovereignty of God. If we don't face trials as believers, then the Bible is wrong. And so when you do face trials, you see the sovereignty of God, the fulfilment of his promises to you. And third, ready by watching. Not watching the skies for the Lord's return, not even watching the news, watching the word of God, sticking with the word of God, submitting ideas and thoughts to the word of God, not running after the latest idea or the latest theory or the latest calculation without careful, cautious examination of what the scriptures say because without them we'll be no better than the disciples in their ignorance. The scriptures are there for your instruction and your comfort. Forewarned is forearmed. Forewarned is by the scriptures. So how can we be watchful for Christ's coming? If it's not looking for signs, trust his word. Trust his word. That's how a believer prepares for Christ's coming and remains watchful. Calvin says, Nothing is more deadly for men who do not know which way to turn in their adversity than to be deceived. And therefore we anchor our belief and our hope in what? In our circumstances? Not at all. In our experiences? Not at all. By our hunches? Not at all. By the signs we see? Not at all. But in Christ and his word. Isaiah prophesied this of the Lord, And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself any more. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or to the left. This is the way. Hear the words of your teacher, of the Lord himself. He's told us all these things that we might not be unprepared. This is the way. Walk in it, watching and waiting for him who comes and when he does. Not only will everyone know, but also every knee will bow and every tongue confess the truth that he is Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you have given us your word. We reflect upon the fact that Jesus is our great prophet, that he spoke these things, that we might not be unprepared. We might not be caught short. We might not be caught by surprise. We thank you for the truth of his words. We thank you that his words were proven to be true. We're sorry for the terrible times that came upon the people of Jerusalem so long ago as part of your judgment upon that nation and that city. And we're sorry yet for the judgment that's coming upon the world when Christ comes with all his holy angels with him.
And we pray that you would help us as we think carefully about what Jesus said, that within the confines of what Jesus said, we will find all that we need to sustain us and to keep us within the circle of your love. So grant us wisdom, grant us understanding and grant us perseverance and endurance that we too might be those who lift up our heads high knowing that the day of the Lord is coming and we will rejoice when every knee bows and every tongue confesses your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.